Good morning once again. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28. We'll be reading from that only verses, <clears throat> excuse me, 1 through 5. <clears throat> and I should tell you, uh, even the title of the sermon uh, in your, your bulletin is wrong. Um, God <laughs> led me to change my direction and even where I'm going in the passage uh, midweek, so I'd already turned in, you know, the name of the sermon. So, um, but we're going to be here in Genesis chapter 28, verses 1 through 5. We're going to look at Isaac, the drifter, returns. Isaac, the drifter, returns. That's the new name of the sermon. (laughs) Um, Isaac, the drifter, returns. And so we'll look at verses 28, verses 1 through 5. This is directly after uh, the kind of insane um, blessing that, that Isaac attempts to give to Esau, but Jacob steals it. So here we come in Genesis chapter 28, verses 1 through 5. Excuse me. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padam Aram, the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you. Excuse me. And make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padamaram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. <clears throat> that is God's word. That is what we will learn from today. Let's, let's join together in prayer for a moment. <clears throat> Father God, we come to you now to hear from your word. And I know that we have so many cares, so many worries, so many burdens, so many distractions in our lives. Real issues, real situations. So God, I pray that even just for this time, you would comfort us and still our hearts so that we might listen to you, to hear from you at a heart level, God. And Lord, we need this so much because I believe the word you have for us today is a a life raft in a raging sea. God, help us not to neglect this. God, help us to hear from you clearly and help us to be changed by it. This I pray in your son's holy name. Amen. So we are, of course, picking back up in our our study of Genesis today. And I just kind of want to go ahead and give you a few uh, introductory remarks before I even uh, get into it. I want to go ahead and tell you uh, the the direction I'm going uh, this morning with the sermon. Today we're going to talk about spiritual drifting. You know, what what might be called uh, uh, backsliding or regressing in our spiritual life and our relationship with God. 
So basically, what it is to drift, if this is a a newer word for you, what it is to drift is to be carried away by the currents of this world from the deep faith, communion, and joy in God that he would have us have. So there is this, this current uh, uh, pushing against us. We are, uh, it's as though we are, are in a, a river pushing and we are in, uh, again, a, a raft or something like that. And we're in that and there's this current in the world that is constantly pushing on us. And we are prone to drift away from God, from enjoying him, from communing with him, from trusting him. So I just want to go ahead and make it plain to you, before we talk about this, we just kind of need to clear the air. If you are a Christian today, you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it will still be your natural tendency to drift away from God. Yeah, yes, you have seen the glory of God. You have seen uh, the, the darkness of your sin. You've seen the beauty of the gospel in Jesus Christ who bears your sins upon the cross then rises from the dead to give you new life. You've seen those things. You've trusted in those things. And that's beautiful. That's amazing. I would say you most likely even have at one point or another been very excited and motivated to to learn more about God, to get to know God, to serve God. But even if those things are true, it does not change the fact that you are still a human living in a fallen world. You will still struggle with sin and temptation, with passivity, till the day that you are in heaven, in glory. And we need to understand that. And I just, again, I just want to clear the air. I, your pastor, ha- have drifted more times than I would like to admit. I-, I want to confess that to you. I want to be open about that. And I actually have uh, brothers in this church and my sister back there, also known as my wife, that I tell when I am drifting. I confess that when, I, hey, me and God aren't where we need to be. And I just want to just go ahead and tell you that it, uh, we need to be open with one another, that this is a, a real propensity in our lives. This is a real problem that we have. All of us will struggle with this. That's why uh, Robert Robertson wrote in uh, 1758 the lyrics, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. He he knew that, uh, God, you bless me in all these ways, yet I am still prone to wonder. I'm still prone to leave the God I love. So, I want you to be honest with yourself. You may be in a good place right now. I I don't know where you are. You may be in a good place right now, but I'm telling you that the, the, the desire, the tendency to drift is right around the corner. Or maybe... You're, you're already drifting. Maybe it's been months since you've had a, a real vital relationship with God. Anything happening spiritually. Maybe it's been years since you've had a vital relationship with God. And I'll tell you, one of the hardest things about uh, the spiritual drift is you don't even notice it's happening. It's been years and you've been drifting. That's your new normal. That's your new normal, right? 
uh, John over here, uh, John Modine, um, he's, he had lots of uh, Achilles problems and lots of just issues with his leg at one point, and they had to take out his Achilles on one of his legs. And so right now he's struggling because he, he has to walk with a limp in order to get around without an Achilles tendon. Uh, but I'll tell you, I doubt that every time he's walking, he thinks about having to limp. That is his new normal, right, John? That, this, it's just, this is just how he walks. I wonder how many of us are, are walking with a limp and don't even realize it. It's our new normal. And so we're going to look at, the, look at this today from the life of Isaac. This is incredibly important for all of us because we are all prone to this. So you might say, okay, what does that have to do with Genesis 28? You know, there it actually kind of seems like Isaac's doing a good thing, right? He, he's, he's giving this blessing to Jacob He's actually blessing him with the, the covenant promises of Abraham. He's passing that on to him, and he, he's sending him away to, to find a, a godly wife. I mean, these are good things, right? Yes, these are, these are good things. In fact, this is such a good thing that in Hebrews 11, verse 20, it says this, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob. By, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings, it says, on Jacob and Esau. Esau was in 27. I'm not sure that I'd call that a blessing, but it does in Hebrews. It, it says, by faith, Isaac did this. So th- this is uh, commended as a great act of faith uh, from Isaac here, what we have just read in chapter 28. Now, the issue is, okay, why are we talking about drifting when he's doing so well? The issue is, he is only doing so well because God has just drawn him back from a drift. God has just uh, blasted a horn that says, hey, you're drifting, and he has drawn him back in a powerful way. So I want to uh, show you what I mean by that, and we'll, we'll kind of look at what's going on here, but number one in your notes, if you want to write something down, God draws Isaac back. God draws Isaac back. I'm going to put all of this in context because I I know that a a lot of you may not have been here last week. Uh, Again, with all the sicknesses that's been going around, we had a lot of people out last week. And uh, even a step further than that, our uh, our recording device wasn't working last week. So there is no sermon online for for last week. So I got to kind of catch you up on, on where we are. So basically, in chapter 25, we saw Isaac's wife, Rebecca, uh, give birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. So this is uh, Isaac's children, or Jacob and Esau. But before those twins were even born, God made it very, very clear that Jacob was supposed to receive the covenant blessings and covenant promises of, of Abraham, these Abrahamic uh, blessings, not Esau. He said there in Genesis 25, verse 23, the older shall serve the younger, the older Esau, he was the first out of the two twins, shall serve the younger Jacob. And so that's all tied into this, this Abrahamic covenant, this Abrahamic blessing. God is saying it is Jacob who will be the heir, who will be the recipient of that blessing. But we have some problems kind of arise in that plan. Starting in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 25, verse 28, just a few verses down from where God had said that, we see that Isaac prefers Esau over Jacob. It says that he loved uh, Esau. Uh, Rebekah loved Jacob, but, 
but Esau, or sorry, but Isaac loved Esau. So, when we get to chapter 27, which was last week, Isaac, he's starting to go blind. His, his body is, is deteriorating. He's beginning to fear his imminent death. And so he decides, okay, it's time for me to give the blessing. And the problem is, he decides to give that blessing to his favored son, Esau, rather than Jacob, the one he is supposed to give it to. Only thing is, Mama Bear Rebecca hears about this. She hears that he is going to bless Esau rather than Jacob, so she concocts a plan. She makes this plan to where it'll be Jacob receiving the blessing in the place of Esau, and as far as she knows, Isaac will know uh, won't even know about it happening. And so that's what happens. Uh, Jacob and, and Rebecca fool uh, Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing. It works. But then Esau comes back in uh, to, to receive the blessing. He's prepared the meal that Isaac has told him to prepare, and he's ready to, ready to receive the blessing. And Isaac is floored. Who, who are you? Who, who, what do you mean you're here to get the blessing? I just gave the blessing. And so he's confused for a moment, but then he realizes what has happened. He has given the blessing to Jacob rather than Esau. This is what's happened. Jacob has stolen Esau's blessing with this uh, deceit that Rachel, or sorry, Rebecca had concocted. And so we might feel bad at this point uh, for, for Isaac and maybe even for Esau, but we need to remember that, that Isaac, planning to give this blessing to Esau, was in direct contradiction to, to God's explicit will. That, that Jacob be the one to receive the blessing rather than Esau. So, so it's only Isaac's plan to sin that is being foiled by this deception. It does not make what uh, Jacob or Rebekah did okay. It doesn't make it non-sinful. But we shouldn't feel bad for Isaac. Uh, God, God's will is actually being carried out um, even through this deception. And so when we get to chapter 28... Uh, Isaac is back on board. Isaac is back on board with God, and he, he's gladly and he's willingly walking in obedience to God again. I mean, it's, it's really quite impressive what we see happening here in chapter 28 when you put that in comparison to what we've seen in chapter 25 and then in 27 once again of, of uh, Esau being the favorite and Esau being the one he plans to give the blessing to. Because what we see happen there in uh, chapter 28 is... He, he's, he's following God at least in a couple of ways that I see. I see first that Isaac is protecting the integrity of the, of the covenant heir uh, Jacob. So look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 28 with me one more time. 1 and 2. It says, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padamaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Okay, so we need to think this through. He's making it clear that Jacob must not marry one of these wicked Canaanite women and so be drawn into their, their pagan idolatry and pagan lifestyle. He knows that that's, that's what would happen if he were to marry a Canaanite woman. 
And so he's sending him back to a location, uh, back to his uh, uh, family, I guess you could say, uh, where he knows there at, there's at least a possibility of him finding a godly wife that will walk alongside him as the covenant heir uh, following God's will and, and encouraging him along. You know, you could think of this as uh, maybe your parents telling you, hey, you should really date people from the church rather than someone from the local bar. You know, fish in the right pond is the way uh, my parents used to say it. That, that's what he's kind of telling them to do. Don't take a wife from these Canaanite women. Go, go over here where you know there are some people who are trusting in God and find a wife from them. So, I mean, this is good. Isaac is now taking an interest in his son's life, which, by the way, uh, Esau had already married two Canaanite women at this point. So he, he had neglected his, uh, his responsibility there. But now he's taking responsibility and interest in the things of God for the first time in a long time. But that's not all. We secondly see there in this passage, uh, chapter 28, in verses 3 and 4, that Isaac is now willfully blessing Jacob right? In chapter 27, he accidentally blessed Jacob because he fooled him. He thought it was Esau. Here he's willfully blessing Jacob, and this time the language uh, is explicitly conferring the Abrahamic covenant promises to Jacob. That will hopefully make sense as I read this. It says there, verses 3 and 4, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. Those are Abrahamic promises. promises right there, that you may become a company of peoples. Verse 4 makes it even more explicit. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. So this is clear, this is unambiguous, that he is willfully, gladly conferring these promises, these blessings of Abraham for, for this, this heir just as God had originally uh, made known that they should do back in chapter 25. And again, Hebrews 11, verse 20, commends his faith here. Commends his faith here in blessing Jacob with this Abrahamic blessing, showing that he will be the one to carry on the covenant promises. So he's in a good place. He's in a really, really good place right here. This is great. You know, if you get into the hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11 for something, and that's listed there, then it was a strong, powerful, faithful thing. And that's what Isaac has just done. But the question is, how did Isaac get back on track, right? You have chapter 27 when he's walking in willful rebellion. and, And maybe the next day or maybe later that day, I have no idea, he is walking in faithful and glad obedience to God and his plan. What made the difference? I think we need to pay attention to this, to how he was drawn back by God. To put it bluntly, God drew Isaac back by graciously allowing his sin to blow up in his face. God graciously drew him back by allowing uh, Isaac to basically ruin every earthly thing that he enjoyed. I mean, think about it. Think about how, how bad this went for him. Well, his wife has just been this instigator of a huge deception because Isaac wasn't walking faithfully with God. So there is definitely uh, tension in the house with Rebekah. Well, what about his sons? He loves his son Esau. Well, now Esau 
is probably you know, mad at him, but he is also planning to kill his brother Jacob. He says that in uh, chapter 27, uh, verse 41, he says, when, when Isaac dies, I'm going to kill him. Uh, when Isaac dies, I'm going to kill Jacob, basically. Um, and so that's what's going on. You have a brother who's just waiting for, for uh, you, sorry, Isaac has a son who's just waiting to kill his other son. Then Jacob, the one who is now blessed, has to flee to keep from being murdered, right? He, that, that's what we just saw. He's telling him to go to Padamaram, to, to Laban's house. He has to flee, and guess what? He is now going to be gone for decades. He's going to be gone for decades. That is what uh, Isaac is left with. But you know what? This was God's grace in Isaac's life. He had been wandering away for all of these years. You know, God could have actually just appeared to Isaac or spoken to Isaac in a dream or a vision and said, hey, you better bless Jacob, not Esau. Get back on my plan. But you know what? God did not just want his obedience. He wanted his heart. God had actually done that back in chapter 26, verse 2. It says this. This is to, to Isaac. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. So a famine had come upon the land, and he was planning evidently to go down into Egypt, and he should not have done that the way his father Abraham had done. Uh, he should not have done that. And God actually keeps him from committing this sin. He, he appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. So God could have stepped in. God could have just said, nope, you need, to, you need to obey. But God didn't just want his obedience. He wanted his heart. And so how does he get it? Well, a slap on the wrist sadly would not do for this hard heart. He needed his sin, his drift to blow up in his face as, as a, a warning siren. Uh, right now in Hickson, I, I live uh, near the, the dam, the TVA dam, and for the first little while that I lived there, Hallie and I would be freaking out a little bit because every now and then you just hear this, Wah. I'm just like, oh no, is a nuclear bomb about to drop. Turns out it's just what they do uh, when the dam is opening up uh, for the lock and stuff. And uh, so I, I didn't know that, you know. And um, so it would really get our attention for a while. I'm thinking, okay, if the dam is breaking or something, we're on pretty high ground. And, you know, it got my attention in the same way, God used this as a warning siren in, in Isaac's life. Hey, you have drifted from me. Look at how far you have fallen. Repent. You know, you might think, well, that's kind of mean of God to allow all this pain and all this tragedy in Isaac's life. But we do the exact same thing uh, to, to our kids, to our children, right? My daughter, when she does something wrong... Um, I, I've kind of got a, a, a way I try to say things to her she, when she's about to be disciplined. We're sitting there. I might sit her on my leg, on my knee, and I'll say, baby, I'm not doing this because I don't love you. In fact, I am doing this because I do love you. God has told you that you must obey your parents, so I cannot let you get away with what you've just done. I cannot let you get away with direct disobedience. I have to discipline you. It's going to hurt. Yes, it is immediately going to hurt, but it's, it's really God's grace in your life saying, no, don't go that way. And that's the same thing that's going on here with Isaac. It hurt. 
It hurt bad for Isaac. I mean, just imagine if that were your life. The tragedy that would be if your whole family crumbled in a day. His sin blew up in his face, but we see his very, the very next uh, time we see Isaac, he is following God. He is back on the, the straight and narrow, as it were. God had drawn him back. So, this kind of leaves us uh, wondering, though. We see the, the end result that God's plan worked to draw Isaac back, but what I kind of want to look at today is, how did Isaac get so far away from God in the first place? I mean, how does the, the son of Abraham, right? He was a miracle child, born when Abraham is 100 years old, and, and his mom's 90. I mean, he knows about these covenant promises. He, he's done all these, these crazy things with Abraham. And how does he end up walking in direct disobedience to God? I mean, God's appeared to him and said things to him, and yet he is walking and direct disobedience to God. Why did he need to be drawn back in the first place? My hope is that we will look at the, these ways that Isaac uh, may have drifted. And I hope that we can use this text as sort of a mirror of our own lives and see what uh, we find. A am I drifting in these same ways? At the very least, I want to use these as uh, protection for us, to help us, uh, things that we need to guard against in our own propensity to drift. So that's number two, if you're writing anything down, the drift. The drift. So the Bible never actually tells us uh, precisely what it is uh, that, that causes Isaac to drift away. There's no one big event, no one just a big moment of temptation and he succumbs. Rather, it was a slow, progressive drift away from God. You've probably heard this analogy before, but it's a good one. I know it happened to me as a kid. Uh, you, you go to the beach and, you know, I'm a, uh, I was a Tennessee boy then, so like the beach, I, I didn't know much about it, you know. But you go out there and you, you see how far you can swim. I'm a boy. That's what I do. I see how far out I can go. And, um, you know, so I'm swimming out there in the ocean. And the, but then you look back. You say, wow, where's my family at? Where are our towels and our cooler at? You know what's happened? I have been swept over by the currents. And, you know, you're, you're, before you know it, you're 200 yards down the beach. That's the same thing that happens to us in our lives. And the same thing that I believe happened with Isaac. It is a slow progressive, continual, unnoticed drift away from God. So I think the Bible does give us a handful of clues and possibilities as to what caused this drift uh, in Isaac's life, what, what tempted him to drift and slowly wander away from God. So I want to show you these. These are these three tendencies uh, that happened in his life and that are very likely to happen in our own lives. So I'll just give you these three. The first one I see is what I call rookie of the year syndrome. Rookie of the year syndrome. You guys know what rookie of the year is. Uh, usually I think of it in baseball or whatever. Uh, there you have a rookie. This is his first time uh, in the major leagues and he comes out and he makes a showing. He impresses everyone. He's knocking it out of the park like he's been in there for 10 years. And that person is a rookie of the year. He came out strong. And so there's a syndrome that accompanies that type of thing, though. 
See, Isaac may have started out so well that he just put it into neutral and drifted away from God. He thought he already had it in the bag, so he didn't have to keep pushing forward. And Isaac really did start out strong. He was an impressive believer in his younger years. We can see just even in his earliest recorded days, in the, recorded in the Bible, that he was clearly following the faith of Abraham. And we see the evidence of that in his life and in his actions. If you remember back in chapter 22, God makes, uh, makes an almost ridiculous request of Abraham. Back in chapter 22, God says this to Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. God tells Abraham to sacrifice as an offering his one and only son Isaac. And you know what? Abraham trusted God. And he attempted to obey God's crazy request by Faith. Again, that one makes it into the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 that he, that he attempted to do this and obey God. So he takes Isaac to the mountain with which God uh, had directed him and he builds an altar there and he lays the wood on it. Then it's time for Isaac to get on that altar and be sacrificed. Now, we talked about this when we studied chapter 22 Isaac was not a seven-year-old who this, uh, his dad could overpower. Isaac was, at the very youngest, uh, a teenager, and possibly up into his mid-30s at this point. He's, he's a young man. He's a strong young man. And you've got his over-hundred-year-old father. Who's going to win that one? Well, what does Isaac do in this crazy, faith-stretching scenario? We know from from Genesis 22 that he willingly allows Abraham to tie him up and lay him on the altar, awaiting only the, the knife to be plunged in him. This is an incredible display of faith. This is a, a rookie of the year moment. This is the first time we really see Isaac do anything uh, at all, is, is this, this, this response of faith. He was trusting in the promises of God. He's trusting in the goodness of God. He's trusting that it is better to follow God rather than his own way. This is a rookie of the year moment. The only problem with that is that was pretty much the high point of all of Isaac's life right there. He lives a long life and that was his high point. This actually, uh, again, happened to me some with soccer growing up. Um, when in like the really, really young age soccer, you know, like five-year-old or whatever, I was really good at soccer comparatively, right? So you think about soccer for five-year-olds. It, it looks like a, a bunch of sheep chasing around a soccer ball all around the field, and kids are just kicking it as hard as they can, and then they chase it, and it's the whole herd going. And so uh, at five years old, I was really good at soccer because I was fast, I was strong, I was uh, fearless, I'd take the kids out, you know, like, and so it, it honestly got me a long way. And so I, I stood out amongst the, all the other players. Um, I, I played for a while up into middle school, then I kind of stopped and um, came back and played high school ball, uh, at, at my school, and I kind of learned something. 
I was still strong. I was still fast. I was still not afraid of, of uh, hitting people or whatever. Um, but I was stuck in my five-year-old version of, uh, of soccer. I mean, it really took me a while to get the hang of actually just practicing and triangulating and sliding, all these things you're supposed to do in soccer. And my touch was not very good. You know, touch is when you try to, you know, softly stop the ball and tap it to where you want it to go. My idea of touch was to see how far and how fast I could get that ball to go. I mean, that, that was just me. That, but that's what I did when I was five years old. It worked really well then. I stayed where I was as a five-year-old. I tried out for college ball, by the way. Turns out those guys are fast, strong, and fearless, and have touch, and know uh, how to play really well. I did not make it to that college. So, anyways, this is, this is what happened with him, I believe. He started out really well. He had this high point, but otherwise, nothing impressive happens. And I wonder if that's true for any of you today. You might have had a really amazing conversion experience. I mean, your eyes were opened. You loved God with all of your heart. You were so thankful for this salvation. You, you were digging in, right? You, were, you, you bought your study Bible. You're, you're, you're doing the, the, the books that you need to, to read, and you're, you're growing so fast. And you might have even had other people around you say, wow, you, you're really growing fast. Wow, this is really impressive what God has done in your life. What a transformation, you maybe even had people come to faith because of, of the way your life was going. But is it possible that you got content with that? Content with that early growth, content with that early success, but somewhere along the way you stopped pushing. You stopped striving. We need to remember that the Christian life is more like putting a flag down in enemy territory than it is putting a flag in at the top of Mount Everest. So you think about it, Mount Everest, you know, people put their flags up there. They hike up this crazy mountain, and they, they stick their, their flag in the ground, right? And then they walk back down the mountain. At that point, their flag is going to stay there. They can never hike again. They can, you know, bind themselves to the couch, potato chips, and TV. And that's totally cool. Their flag will stay there. It's good to go. They've been to Everest. But that is not the Christian life. The Christian life is going behind enemy lines and putting our flag in the ground. And then we got to stand and defend it for the rest of our days. We have to fight. We have to strive to keep that flag up. That is much more what the Christian life is like. It is a continual fight. A continual straining forward. Hebrews 2.1 says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. We must draw these things to our attention, lest we drift away from them. Paul says, uh, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, he's speaking of this final perfection and righteousness in his life, and he says, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider I have made it my own, but one thing I do, listen to this, forgetting what lies behind, successes, early growth, all the accolades, people saying, wow, you've grown so much, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal 
for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if, any, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So think about it, friends. This is the Apostle Paul. Amazing conversion experience. I did not have a bright light in Jesus talk to me audibly when I got saved. I didn't have scales come on and then fall off of my eye. None of, none of that happened to me. Paul had that type of salvation experience. Then, Paul is one of the greatest missionaries and ambassadors for Christ the world has ever seen. I say one of the, I mean, he might be the greatest missionary and ambassador for Christ we have ever seen. And yet, Paul says, I haven't made it my own. What I need to do is forget what is behind and press forward, strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal. If Paul has to press on, if Paul cannot be content with past growth and past success, neither should you or I be. I don't care what age you are, you better press on. This is what we see. I believe this is part of what happened in Isaac's life. He had the rookie of the year syndrome. He could only look back to past success, past growth, and that made him feel comfortable to put it in neutral. There was never a day that he said, okay, I'm going to put it in neutral. It's just what he did. So we need to guard against that. We must strain forward. The second thing I see here in Isaac's life, small compromises and sins. Small compromises and small sins, you could even say. Seemingly small sins from our perspective. I see this in Isaac's life in a handful of places. Uh, first, I see it in the way that he favored Esau over Jacob. He, he thought it would be okay for him to show partiality, to show favoritism uh, toward one son over the other. I mean, they were twins. You think that could be harmful? But Isaac thinks, ah, what's the big deal? I'm sure Jacob will be fine. I'll just pay attention to and show my affection to only Esau. You can see this in the way he deliberately lies to the people of Gerar in chapter 26 about Rebekah being his sister rather than his wife. He fears them. And so he says, all right, we're going to lie. We're going we're to say that you're my sister. And it's interesting because in uh, verse 8 of chapter 26, it says that he had been there a long time before his sin was ever found out. How many times do you think he had to tell that same lie? <laughs> been there years and years. Maybe even, even if he was there one year, which I think a long time is longer than that. I mean, he had to tell this lie over and over. Oh, who's this? Oh, oh that's my sister. You know, he, he, may, he may have had his conscience pricked at one point. Okay, I lied that first time. That's it. But then someone says, oh, who is this? She's pretty. Oh, that, that, that's my sister. Don't, don't, worry, you know, don't worry about her. Oh, okay, I had to lie again. Oh, hey, who's this? And just over and over lying until, I mean, a year into it. He's, he's not even thinking about it anymore. He does get caught. We see this uh, small sin and compromise in the way that he doesn't uh, initially take his God-given responsibility to raise and lead his children in the way of the Lord. God has given him a responsibility to raise and to lead his children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But we remember in, at the end of chapter 26, Esau has married Canaanite women. 
you remember the way uh, Abraham helped uh, Isaac out? He sends his servant all the way back to Laban's household to get him a wife to make sure that he doesn't marry a Canaanite woman. Eh, whatever. You know, he'll marry a Canaanite woman. I mean, kids have to make their own decisions, right? I can't run his life. I mean, we don't even see him, him bat an eye. We don't see him say anything, do anything. It would be harder to speak into his life. So he doesn't want to do that. So he's got these small sins, these small compromises. By the time we get to chapter 27, with the whole blessing that goes crazy, we can hardly recognize Isaac as the godly man that he originally was. Why? Because he's been making these small compromises in his life. He's been committing these small sins, seemingly small sins, and over time, his heart has become hard. It has become callous towards things of God. It has become callous towards obeying God and loving God and serving God and following God's will. Slowly but surely, sin begat more and more sin. I think about Hebrews uh, chapter 12 verse 1 says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Small compromises, those are weights. Then you have these sins. These are the things that drag you down, that, that keep you from being able to press forward. It, it puts this uh, um, spiritual divide between you and God and your ability to commune with Him. He doesn't leave you or forsake you, but you're not able to, to, to see Him, to know Him, to hear from Him. So what do we do when we've realized we've fallen into a pattern of compromise and a pattern, pattern of sin? I think we take the Apostle John's prescription from 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is what Isaac should have been doing. When he uh, was doing any of these sins, any of these small compromises, when he realized it, instead of hardening his heart and just stealing himself against God, he should have acknowledged, hey, this is sin. I've got sin. I'm a sinner. But if I confess my sins to God, he will be faithful and just to not only forgive me, but to cleanse me of this unrighteousness, to, to change my path, to help me by his power, by his grace, to turn from those sins and from those patterns that are dragging me down. That's what he should have been doing. But he continued to walk in small compromises and small sins until finally it culminates in this huge sin and falling out uh, in his family. I'm going to give you one more drift area that I see in his life. Third, falling in love with the things of the world. Falling in love with the things of the world. This is another thing that I see happen in Isaac's life. He starts to fall in love with the things of the world more than he loves God. Ultimately, you could say that this is the root sin. This is idolatry. Loving anything more than God, letting it have a higher place in your heart, in your mind, in your life, is the ultimate sin against God. And we know that this heart sin of idolatry always leads to outward sin in our 
lives. So, what was uh, uh, the way that Isaac had fallen in love with the things of this world more than God over time? Well, we talked about this some earlier. Um, we sa- said that Jacob, or sorry, that Isaac loved Esau, but it actually tells us why he loved Esau more than Jacob, rather than Jacob. Genesis chapter 25, verse 28 says this, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. That is, he would go out and hunt an animal, uh, and he would bring it back, and he would cook it for Isaac, and Isaac loved him for it. And he, I mean, it's kind of a weird thing, Isaac loves his son because of what his son can give him. He can fill his belly with good food. You know, he evidently is uh, not so pumped on vegetables and beans. You know, he more likes uh, deer, venison. You know, like that, that's evidently what's going on here. He likes these good foods, these delicacies more than God, evidently. Now, let me ask you, is there anything wrong with liking the taste of good food? Is there anything inherently wrong with that? Certainly not. God created food for us to enjoy. Think about it. God created vegetables, obviously, as punishment for sin. But God created things like chocolate cake uh, that it might delight our hearts, right? I mean, you think about Oreos, whatever it is you like. All right, I'm going to stop. It's lunchtime. I know i got to quit saying these things. But God put flavor into foods for us to enjoy. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. And the same for the rest of God's good creation. There are so many beautiful, delightful, pleasurable things in this world that God has given us graciously to enjoy. And that's not a problem. The problem arises when we love the thing that God has created more than we love the Creator. We love the things that God has made more than God himself. And that is evidently and obviously what happened with Isaac because when we get to chapter 27, here is what motivated uh, Isaac to bless Esau rather than Jacob. Listen to this, Genesis 27 verses 1 through 4. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me, that I may eat it, and that my soul may bless you before I die. Esau, I'm going to bless you. Go, go make me some of that good venison that I like. Go, go hunt a deer, kill it, and, and cook it, and make it just the way I like, cause it, and then I can bless you. He's trying to get a meal by blessing uh, Esau. He, you remember, by the way, God has made it explicit that it is Jacob rather than Esau that is to, to receive these covenant blessings, and yet he is going to bless Esau instead. It's interesting, by the way, I, I looked it up, that word love, he says, uh, prepare for me delicious foods such as I love. That is the exact same Hebrew word. It's, uh, 
Anyways, it's only been used a couple times in Genesis up to this point. But it's the exact same Hebrew word that God uses when he's saying to Abraham, uh, when he's saying his love for his son Isaac. Um, he says there in Genesis 22, verse 2, listen to this. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains. So the same love... That, that Abraham had for his son Isaac, Isaac now has for food, for this good food. Now think about this. Do some, do some work with me. God says, Abraham, take this thing that you love and sacrifice it. Show me that you love me more than that thing that you love. And he's talking about his son, his only son, Isaac. And he goes and he prepares to sacrifice his son because he loves God more. What about Isaac? Here comes the test. Which one are you going to bless? Are you going to follow God or follow your belly? Are you going to obey God or obey food? Are you going to obey your fleshly desires? What will please you and bring you immediate delight? Are you going to follow the God of deep joy we come to Isaac and he, he makes his choice on what he loves. Prepare for me delicious food such as I love. <sighs> He's choosing food over God. He has let food take a place in his heart that it was never meant to take. It has overcome, it has uh, eclipsed his love for God and his obedience to God. His love for food. And this is idolatry. This causes him to drift. By the way, if you think about it, if you love something more than God, you're going to go to that thing for satisfaction rather than God. You're going to go to that thing for peace rather than God. You're going to pursue that desire rather than your desires for God because you love it more than God. So it only makes sense that if you are committing idolatry, loving something more than God, then you will pursue that thing rather than God and you will drift away from God. It only makes sense. Now, it comes to us. How are we doing? It may not be food, it may be. But are there good things that have become God things in your life? They don't have to be sinful at first. They can be great things. It can be your ministry. But if, when, they, when they become a God in your life, something you love more than God, it is a sin, it is a problem, and you will drift from God, and you will sin against God. So I ask you, do you love your family and friends more than God? Your family? Really? How could I not love my family? I, of course I love my wife, I love my children, I love my parents. But Jesus says this, Matthew ten thirty seven. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Your family, your friends, your children, they can all become idols in your life. Love them more than God. Obey and serve them more than God. Do you love money and the things that it can buy you more than God? I mean, I don't actually love the paper in my wallet. I don't care. But what I do love is what that paper can buy me. 
these items, these little trinkets, these pleasures, these different things? Do you love money and the things it can buy you more than God? If you do, you'll be a slave to your job. You'll not be generous with your money. You'll hoard it. You'll spend all your time and uh, attention on these trinkets and things that you have bought. Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus says, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life. Don't, 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 Don't let that breeze by you. One's life. We're talking life. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Be on guard. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse, 6, verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. They will fail you. They will lead you away from the true treasure, which is God. Set our hopes on God. I won't keep giving you verses, but I'll just list some more possible uh, loves of this world. Do you love success, respect, and what others think of you more than God? Your reputation. You're willing to lie to protect your reputation. That is loving your reputation more than God. You're willing to sacrifice your family and your spirituality so that you might move up the ranks in your job. That is loving success more than God. You're willing to do sinful things, teenagers, in order that your friends will think that you're cool. That is loving popularity more than loving God. And Jesus says, if you love any of these things, you're not worthy of me. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. It does not consist in what people think of you. It consists of knowing and loving God. Do you love your hobbies and entertainment more than God? These things that you enjoy doing, these things you enjoy watching, these activities, are they keeping you from communion with God? Are they keeping you from obedience uh, to God? Are they keeping you from love for others? And they have become an idol in your life. Do you love pleasure and comfort more than God? This feels good. So I'm going to do it, even though God says it is wrong. This pleasure. Comfort. I don't feel like pressing in. I don't feel like going out and serving. I don't feel like uh, reaching out. I don't feel like um, witnessing to my neighbors. I don't feel like doing this comfort. Yet we disobey the great commission and everything that God has told us to do for the sake of our pleasure, for the sake of our comfort. It has become a God in our lives. I could go on and on and on. Anything, anything can be turned into an idol when it surpasses love for God. Anytime we set our eyes and affections on things other than God, we will inevitably stop coming to God for our joy, for our peace, and for our satisfaction. So we will drift away. So we've seen these reasons. Uh, There are many more, by the way, reasons that we might drift. I can think of disillusionment, maybe some tragedy in your life. So you think, well, maybe God's not good. 
Maybe, maybe, maybe God isn't all that great, so you know what? I don't really want to get to know him. I don't want to commune with him, because what if I see that he's bad and then I have no hope? You can think of uh, just, just, just general passivity. I, I don't care. I'm ambivalent about the world and life, and we slowly drift away. You can think about uh, not, not communing with brothers and sisters and being encouraged by them. You can just think of all these different reasons. Bad management of time. I mean, come on. We, we, don't, we have time for all sorts of things, but we don't have time for God. You can think of all these different reasons that we might drift. We saw those three that were evident in Isaac's life that led him to drift away from God and ultimately to commit this grievous sin of trying to bless Esau and ultimately to to just blow up his family. That's what happened in his life. But I want to remind you of the grace of God in drawing him back. God drew him back. God stood there with open arms, ready to receive Isaac back in a relationship and uh, to, to, to give him peace and joy and satisfaction and help him to walk in obedience. And that's what we see there in Genesis 28. I want to tell you the answer. This is number three. I'm just the summary of what we've already been talking about, but the answer is to set your heart on God and the gospel. The answer to the drifting is to set your heart on God and the gospel. Again, there are a billion different things that could take your heart away from God, cause you to drift from God, cause you to wander from God. But it's a a beautiful thing that the answer to that drift is always the same. Look to God. Set your heart on God and the beauty of the gospel. See, when you behold the glory of God, you won't be nearly as enticed to look at other things. When you taste and see that the Lord is good, you'll start coming back for seconds. You know what jumpstarts my Bible study life? Is when I get up early one morning and say, whatever, I don't need sleep. I'm going to get up, I'm going to read my Bible. And, I, and God opens my eyes and I see wondrous things in his word. And I'm learning these things and seeing these connections. And I'm excited, I'm repenting of sin. I'm finding my joy in God. And I'm like, you know what I'm doing tomorrow? I'm losing sleep again. You'll taste and see that the Lord is good and you will want seconds. You will hear and read the wondrous character, the wondrous works of God, specifically in the gospel, sending his son to bear the sins that you have committed, the the, the punishment for those sins, uh, dying on the cross for your sins, rising from the dead to give you eternal life, and that you can simply believe on him. You can think on those things and be so drawn to it that nothing else will seem all that impressive anymore. You will want to be close to this God. You'll want to commune with this God, to talk to this God, to obey this God, to serve this God. The answer is to set your heart on God and the gospel. Rather than looking around at the things of this world, finding out how we might enjoy them, rather than shifting our lives into neutral because we have a few past successes, what we need to be doing is Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We need to, Colossians 3, 1 and 2, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
We need to, Matthew 6, 19 through 20, not lay up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart is going to follow your eyes. Look to Jesus and you will not drift from him. If you've already drifted, guess what? Look to Jesus and he will draw you back. This is the most beautiful news that God saves us and he keeps us. And he does that by, by putting his son before us uh, up on the, the, the pole, as it were, as, as Moses raised the serpent on the pole. The, Jesus is our salvation, but we have to look to him to keep from drifting with, from him. Some of you, right now, as you sit in your seat, you have a battle inside yourself going on. I'm not really drifted. That's other people. I'm not, right now, I'm doing great. You're battling. You know why you're battling? Because it's not true. And the Holy Spirit is trying to impress that upon you. I'm not saying all of you are drifting. I'm saying some of you, this battle is going on right now in your heart. I'm good. Let's stop this. Why wait until there is a, an explosion in your family? Why wait until your sin and your drift blows up in your face? Why not let the Spirit speak to you today from His Word? Repent. Come back to your first love. Do the works that you did at first. Revelation 2, 4, and 5. You can come back to God. He is ready to receive you. Others of you, you've never drifted from God because you don't truly know Him. You were never with Him in the first place. You had never looked to Him as the founder and perfecter of your faith. You had never looked to Him as your satisfaction, as your Savior, as your life. I'll tell you, that road only leads to destruction. I can tell you today, you can look to Him for the first time. You can look upon His glory, the great things that He has done, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you can say, I want that. I see my sin, my old life, my old patterns. I want to turn from that and I want to turn to Jesus. I want what he has to offer because I want that God. And then I want to keep on with him for the rest of my life. You can do that today. I don't know where you're at. I don't know how vibrant your relationship is with God. But I know we all, myself 100% included, need this message. We must continually press on and look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this example in Isaac. I wonder if our lives were written down, what people would see, all the ways that we have slowly drifted from you, all the ways we have set our eyes and set our hearts on worthless things. What would be said of us? But Lord, we thank you that we do have this written account of Isaac, his life, his drift, but also of his being drawn back by you. Lord, 
May it not take our sin blowing up in our face and the consequences to be grievous to draw us back to you. May we let you gently woo us with your word to seek you above all else. God, if anyone in this room has never trusted in the work of your son before, may they lay down their guard today. May they step into the light of your glory and your grace and believe on the gospel and have a new life and live a new life. God, do that in their hearts even now. Lord, we need you every single day. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But God, you love us and you keep us. You always put your son before us. Let us dig in and press into that deep. This I pray in your son's holy name. Amen. Every blessing tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise.